All right, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. On Tuesday evenings, Marcy and I help lead the young adult group here at the door. And over the last few months, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter. And it's been both challenging at times to read about the suffering of Christians and all the things that they were going through, but also encouraging to read about the living hope that they had in Christ and how that changed their life here and now. So this morning, I'd like to share with you just the opening of this letter. But before we get into it, we need a little bit of background. See, it's always good to get some context when we're jumping into the Bible, to have an idea of, of what place we're jumping into. And so First Peter was written by Peter, A plus, guys, A plus. First Peter, of course, written by Peter. This is the Peter, right? This is the Peter we know from the Gospels who walked with Jesus. He's the Peter who pulled his sword and sliced off the guard's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was ready to die fighting with his Lord. And yet later that night, famously, he denied Christ three times. But later he was restored when Jesus asked him three times to feed his lambs, to feed his sheep. We see Peter fulfilling this calling, right, to care for God's people as he writes this letter. He's using the word of God to care for the people of God. This is a man who'd experienced the grace of God personally. And now he's sharing it with others. He had seen our risen Lord in the flesh, and he was there when Christ ascended into heaven. He was there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles. And he was one of the early leaders in the church. But now, 30 years has gone by, and the church has grown, right? It's spread all throughout the world. In this letter, Peter is writing likely from Rome to Christians spread throughout Asia Minor. It seems that these Christians had been in their homeland and now found themselves as strangers in a foreign land. But Peter is writing to them to remind them of the hope they have, a living hope in Jesus. He wants them to know that even when Christians suffer for following Jesus, God is working through them to accomplish his will. It is my hope today that we can learn from Peter that through the resurrection of Jesus, God has secured for us both a new birth and an inheritance that can never spoil. And that if suffering does come to us, if trials do come, that we can stand firm in our faith to the glory of God, knowing that he will see us through. So let's get into our text this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, 
exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Padocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. All right, this letter is written to God's elect exiles. Now, this is kind of an interesting phrase because it contains two words we don't often see together, elect exiles. Elect simply means chosen by God, right? God's people. Exiles mean that they're living in a land that is not their home. These Christians are both God's redeemed people and also strangers in a strange land. Peter begins here by reminding them of their relationship with the triune God, right? What we would call the Trinity. He addresses his letter to God's elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Man, a whole sermon could be preached on just this verse. Um, today I'm going to focus mostly on verses 3 through 9. Um, but I would encourage you maybe this week to spend some time in this verse and just think about it. This is a, an interesting verse because here we see the Trinity on display, right? In a very clear way. I have a habit in my Bible where when I find a verse that highlights the three persons of the Trinity, I'll put a little, little Trinity symbol next to that um, just to remind me of that. This verse helps us understand that God is one God in three persons. Again, it's fascinating, but I'm, I'm going to move on because we only have so much time today. Because I love the, the way he opens this next section, right, in verse 3. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter just erupts in praise for God. I think sometimes we can buzz right by verses like this, Right? And just kind of move on really quickly without giving it much thought. But Peter's about to them remind them of everything that God has done for them in Christ. I mean, that should, that should create something in us. That should cause us to worship and our hearts to cry out as well. Praise be 
to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's read what Peter's so excited about. He continues in verse 3. According to his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The English Standard Version, I'm kind of coming out of the NIV, the English Standard Version says it another way. It says that God has caused us to be born again into a living hope. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God has given us new birth into a living hope? Let's break it down a little bit. Peter says that God has given us new birth. He has caused us to be born again. Have you ever given something new life? Not like an animal or like a person or something. I guess if you can, if you can do that, if you can raise things from the dead, come talk to me after the church. Maybe we'll start a business or something. But maybe, maybe you've taken something old, right, and made it new. Maybe you've taken something that's broken and fixed it. Last week, Marcy and I were out garage sailing down here in Lapine, and I found an old reel-to-reel tape deck. And if you don't know what reel-to-reel is, just imagine a giant cassette player. And if you don't know what a cassette player is, just imagine like an iPod that plays one album. And even iPods are getting a little outdated. It's just a machine that plays music, okay? Anyway, we found one, and despite the guy telling me that hey, I was just playing this like last week in my living room. It's now in his shed, just covered in dust, boxes over it. Like, no, I was listening to this last week. It works. I promise. I'm looking at it, and it just does not look good, right? It's all grimy, and the wood is all scratched, and it's just filthy. It looks broken, but I saw value there. So I I bring it home, and I set it on my bench, and I take a look at it, and I start to start to take it apart, right? I take the stainless steel off and I, I clean off all the grime and I buff it out so it's shiny again. And I take the wood casing and I start to rub oil back into it and it starts to come back to life, right? And I get out my heat gun and I, I melt the old grease and I get the mechanisms working again. I clean it up. I put some fresh oil in there. And piece by piece, it's brought back to life. It's restored. In the same way, God fixes us from the inside out. He recreates us and restores us to the way he created us to be before sin had separated us from God, before our sin had broken our relationship with him. 2 Corinthians tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We've been given new birth through faith in Jesus. Amen? So God has given us new birth into what? It says here, into a living hope. It actually says, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So why is our hope a living hope? Our hope is alive because God raised Jesus from the dead, right? Because our Savior is alive, our hope is alive. That's what Easter's all about. I can remember as a child, I loved going to church on Easter morning. 
is one of the only times in the year I could go scream in church. The pastor would get up before the service, right, right as the service was starting, he would get up and he'd scream, he is risen. And we would all get to yell back, he is risen indeed, hallelujah. And my parents couldn't do anything about it. I could just scream as loud as I wanted. It was, it was awesome. We did this to express our living hope in our risen Lord. Peter goes on to say that our hope is through the resurrection and into an inheritance. I mean, that sounds good, right? An inheritance? Who doesn't want an inheritance? I've never received an inheritance personally, so my, my frame of reference for an inheritance is a board game that I always regret playing. It's called Monopoly. Don't, you know the one. Don't play with me. We won't be friends after, I promise. It always seems like such a good idea, and then I end up embarrassing myself. Anyway, you land on community chest, right? And right as you're worried about seeing the card for hotel repairs, you look down, it says, you inherit $100. And you're like, yes, I can survive one more turn. I'm not sure I'm having fun, but I promised I wouldn't quit, so here we are. Of course, once the game's over, that inheritance means nothing, right? It's gone and forgotten. But God has an inheritance for us that can never perish, spoil, or fade. God is bringing his people to this inheritance. Peter even tells them that their inheritance is kept in heaven for them, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The inheritance that he is writing about is a restored relationship with our creator and everything that goes along with that. Sure, it's, it's treasure and riches. It's eternity. But it's also being in the presence of God. All this kept in heaven for you. To help us understand this, I, I read an author one time who shared the illustration of a surprise party. Who makes a surprise party happen? The host, right? They send out all the invitations. They get the balloons ready, right? They order the pizza. They make sure it arrives on time. They put out the little kazoos. It's been a long time since I've been to a party, so I'm just going off memory here. But once everything is prepared, what happens? The host send someone to go and get the guest of honor, right? So not only is the host responsible for throwing the party and taking care of every detail, but they're even responsible for making sure the guests arrive. God has not only prepared a place for you in heaven, he has not only prepared an inheritance for you, but he is the one who is responsible for making sure you get there. And he does this through the death and resurrection of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that you have earned. He took your sins on himself so that you could have new life with God. If you are in Christ, if you believe that by Jesus' death you are healed, 
and by his resurrection you are made new, then you have been born again to an inheritance that can never spoil. And why does an inheritance come? It comes through the death of a relative. It comes through a relationship, right? Our inheritance comes because of the death of Jesus and the relationship we have with him. Through faith in Jesus, we have become God's children. Speaking of this very thing, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, it says that to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Now, if this is true, if we who are God's children stand to inherit eternal life with him, if we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus and into an inheritance that can never fade, then how does that affect our life here and now? First and foremost, it creates worship in us, right? I mean, we see that in Peter's letter here. He says in verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice. And a little later he'll say, that they are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. A joy so deep, so profound, so full, that it's difficult to even express. When we've experienced the grace of God, when we've been made new, we can't help but praise him. What's interesting here, though, is the context in which they are rejoicing. The verse continues with, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. They are not greatly rejoicing because their lives are easy or comfortable, right? They are not thanking God every day because they are prosperous or wealthy. No, their lives are difficult. See, they did not fit in with the people around them, with their new neighbors. In chapter 4, it'll say that because the Christians didn't take part in the X-rated idolatry that was associated with worshiping the Roman gods that time, they were distrusted and hated. See, people thought, if you're not worshiping the gods with us and something bad happens, then the gods are angry with you and you're basically ruining our society. Right? You're, not, you're not part of being Roman, but you're a troublemaker. And so people hated them. They were the outcasts. Following Jesus cost them something. Just as Jesus had promised his disciples that it would. This reminds us of a scene in John 16, where Jesus, before going to the cross, is assuring his disciples that suffering would come. But then he tells them this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but what? Take heart. I have overcome the world. And I see some of you guys mouthing the verse as I read it, because you know it, because you need to know it. 
Because life on this earth can be difficult for the Christian. Sometimes we are called to suffer for following Christ. And that's really the kind of suffering that's in view here. They are suffering because they belong to Jesus, and yet they greatly rejoice because of their living hope. As you read on, Peter assures these Christians that their suffering is not meaningless. When we suffer for Christ, we may be tempted to wonder, why isn't God making this easy? Why has God allowed this? And yet, speaking of these trials, Peter says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Gold, which which even though refined by fire and of great value to this world, right, is destroyed in the end. But your faith has value not only in this world, but in the world to come. The thought here is, don't spend your life securing an inheritance that is temporary when God has already secured one for you that is eternal. Don't spend your life securing an inheritance that is temporary when God has already secured for you one that is eternal. It's because your your faith in God is the greatest gift you could ever receive. And God's word tells us that our faith is purified, it's refined, right, by trials. He uses suffering to cause us to rely on him and to remind us of the great treasure we have in Jesus. But there's another reason suffering comes to the Christian. It has to do with God's glory. In finding our hope and faith in Jesus, God is glorified. Our verses say, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's something here I think is easy to miss if we're not reading carefully. Suffering and trials come to the Christian so that our faith in God is shown to be real. In this, God is glorified. God is glorified in a faith that endures. Why? Is it because we buckle down and use all our energy to stand firm and endure and to make God proud? Is it because we are on our best behavior all the time? No. God is glorified in our faith because he is the one who caused you to be born again. He is the one who shields you with his power. He not only prepared your inheritance, but he's the one who's responsible for bringing you there. And we know that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God is glorified in us when we suffer for his name because it shows the world that we are his and his work in us 
is real. Amen? In verse 8, we read, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you have not seen him, you love him. See, Peter had seen Jesus. But the people he's writing to had not. They had heard the gospel and believed. What an amazing thing it must have been for Peter to see Jesus' plan to build his church unfolding, right? To see Jesus gathering his sheep as he had promised. And for Peter to have opportunity to feed those sheep. What an incredible thing. Jesus had said to his disciples right before he ascended, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here it was. They were Peter's descendants in the faith. And so are we. He says, even though they don't now, they believe and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. They are filled with joy because they have confidence that God will see them through their trials. In closing, I want to share with you a picture of our living hope and inheritance that we find in Revelation 21. And instead of even flipping there, I would, I would just ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to read it to you. This is a picture of the end of the story for God's people. It's a picture of our living hope and our inheritance. So if you would, just close your eyes and try to imagine what this is going to be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. I will be their God and they will be my children. Let's pray. We praise you, God. We praise you for giving us new birth into a living hope.
through the resurrection of your son. We praise you for bringing us into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, which you're keeping in heaven for us. Continue to shield us by your power until the coming of your salvation. Amen.